Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. And in this dramatic interaction between Paul and James, Jesus' brother, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and it was a, it was a really a, a, a stark picture that we were able to see from, from Luke's uh, writings here. And James was concerned that Paul's presence would be, would be unsettling to the church there in Jerusalem that was dominated by all the Jews who, who were still adamant about keeping all the Old Testament ceremonial law. So in order to, to soften Paul's image, it was decided that he needed to take some steps to demonstrate what a good Jew he actually was in spite of what the people had heard about him. However, before that week-long purification ritual could be finished, Paul was actually captured by a mob, dragged out of the temple. That mob would have killed Paul if they could have. If left to their own devices, Paul's life would have ended then and there. But believe it or not, it was the Romans who intervened and rescued Paul. They tried to establish order to get the mob under control, and so they bound Paul, took him back to the barracks, to the Roman headquarters there. But he was given permission to address the crowd before he left. And so in chapter 22, the first 20 or so verses is Paul's public sharing of his testimony. I want you to imagine this scene. Here's an angry mob ready to rip him to shreds, yet Paul is able to stand up and face this crowd, and he stands up and he's able to share his testimony with this crowd of of really angry people. And even as you go back and go back and read these verses, I mean, please, it's only for your edification, But as Paul shares this story, you can just see the stunning picture of those connected dots. That life and, and all those decisions, all those choices that were made in Paul's life that brought him to this place, to this point in time. He went from someone who was an enemy of the gospel to someone that would be willing to lay down his life for the sake of that gospel call. But as you can imagine, Paul's testimony just angers the crowd. Just they're furious. And the Romans are confused by the whole thing. And so they bring Paul in. They bind his arms and his legs outstretched, and they're getting ready. And I love what the, what the Roman says here. He says, to examine him by flogging. I don't want to be examined that way. I mean, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, we're going to examine you today by flogging, find a new doctor. Okay, uh, that's not how you want to be examined. And just as they're about to start, you can imagine, I think of, I remember the Passion of the Christ, that Roman centurion who's got the cat of nine tails, who, who's got the crazy eyes, if you remember when Jesus is about to get flogged. And so every Roman centurion who beats people for a living, that's the picture I have in my mind. And so in my brain, I see this crazy Roman centurion with a cat of nine tails. He's ready to fillet the Apostle Paul's back. You can hear the rattling of the shells and the chips of bone that are woven into the leather strands. You can hear him getting ready to raise the whip and start to call out those terrible numbers as they are counted. Just then, Paul turns and says, is it wise to do this to a Roman citizen? In verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You see, Roman citizenship was like an American Express card. Membership has its benefits, right? 
And being a Roman citizen gave you certain protections under the law that non-citizens did not have access to. And one of those protections is what we today call due process. That means that the law's got to have time to work itself out. You've got to have time to determine guilt or, or innocence or, or those sort of things. And so that was one of the things that Roman citizenship gave you access to. Paul knew this, and he took advantage of it. It wasn't even the first time that he had taken advantage of the power of his citizenship. And those Roman authorities, they knew that withholding due process came with very serious punishments for them. And it is there at this dramatic moment that we pick up today in Acts chapter 22. We'll start at the very last verse of Acts chapter 22 there in verse 30. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we look to Acts chapter 22 beginning in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the, the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other part others were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the, just the drama of Scripture, the, the image that's painted for us. We pray that as we Consider our graduates as the world that they're facing, even as we look to our own lives and our own faith. May we learn from Paul here. May we grow in his example where appropriate and learn from his mistakes as well. Go with us now as we think about these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. You know, these, these chapters that we are looking at here are filled with all of the courtroom drama that you can imagine. If law and order had a first century version, this trial would make the cut in terms of the script. It's got all the politics, all the drama, all the conspiracy 
that you could possibly want. There's even a group later on of 40 men. They make a covenant with one another. It's like, they're, it's like a, a bond made in blood where they say, we will not eat again until Paul is dead. And so now there's this, this mob of 40 guys who are committed to Paul's murder in the middle of all of this. And so, indeed, this is a, a drama-filled image that we have here. And even with that conspiracy, Paul's nephew, one of the only family members that we hear of Paul's life, is actually the one who manages to break the conspiracy and save the day. And so you can imagine this scene unfolding. And a lot of people over the years have compared Paul's treatment to Jesus' treatment. And there are similarities, you can, but you can tell that there's two very different outcomes in mind. You, you go back to Jesus' trial, and Jesus' trial was an illegal trial. It was a mock trial, but that was intended to simply lead to the hurried death sentence. Jesus' trial, the goal was to see that he was crucified and crucified quickly. It's clear, though, even though Paul's enemies want him dead, their efforts are coming up short. And so I think as we read this, there's, there's a couple of different ways to read this. One is to read it as a whole and understand all of the drama that's there and all the intrigue and all the conspiracy. We can see it that way, of course, or we can look in on those interactions that take place between these characters. And I think when we dig into these interactions... We actually find there's some pretty helpful principles for life, both those of us who are far past graduation and those of us who are looking forward to it in the next few days. And so this morning, I want to look at these interactions, draw some particular conclusions for our graduating seniors, but recognize that there's broad application for us as well. The first thing I would tell you this, and please don't take this wrong, remember, your privilege will not insulate you from hardship. Now, this is a trigger word. Okay, so let me go ahead and qualify this because I, some of y'all that watch too much uh, Fox News are, are triggered already because I've used this word privilege. What's wrong with the word privilege? Well, it's today filled with all kinds of stuff about, uh, about sexual and gender and racial privilege and all those sort of things. And, and I understand that word is, is loaded today. It's a shame that words get loaded. We can't just use words anymore, that words get loaded with stuff that they don't necessarily need to be loaded with. And so this word, this word of being privileged, has to be qualified. And so let me ask the, particularly our graduates, but all of us really, to, to look around at, at your life in particular. You were born into a time of prosperity unlike anything the world has ever known, right? I mean, there are fewer people living in poverty today than any other time in the history of the world, although it's working the other way now, just, uh, just so we can be clear. Um, I heard somebody say they were paying $5.75 for a gallon of gas in North Carolina or something earlier today. So, so we're working on getting all that, that prosperity taken back. So don't worry, okay? But if you look around, even still, we were born into this time of prosperity unlike anything that, that, that's ever been experienced before. These graduates, my goodness, they've had access to, to a remarkable education. These graduates have had every opportunity given to them to pursue their goals. I mean, no one is looking at these three graduates that stood here and the four that were up here or that, that, that we're celebrating today. No, nobody's looking at them saying that they're never going to make it. Right? I mean, we're looking at them and saying, man, the, the world is before them. The, the only thing limiting them are the decisions that they make, right? I mean, that's, that's what the class of 2022 is up against, is the only thing stopping you is you. I mean, there's opportunities to go to college, opportunities to join the military and let the military to pay you to go to college, opportunities to go to work. Have you seen? You can get a job anywhere doing anything right now. You can go work at a fast food restaurant or you can go 
be a doctor, I think the hospital's hiring with real low qualifications right now, right? I mean, everybody's hiring. I mean, there's no high school graduate that should sit around and say, I just can't get a job anywhere. Nobody's hiring me. If they're not hiring you, it's because of you, not because of them. And forgive me if that hurts your feelings or triggers you, okay? So let's be real. Our class of 2022 is incredibly privileged, and it has nothing to do with the color of their skin or whatever gender they have. They've had remarkable opportunities already, even if the last two years have been marked by a global pandemic. Let's be honest about that. They're privileged. They are. We all are. That doesn't mean your lives have been free from bumps or bruises. In the grand scheme of world history, though, I think I'd rather be part of the class of 2022 than the class of 1922 or, or 1822. I, I like my chances better, don't you? I mean, I, I like, the, I like the, the fact that if I get sick, there's probably a way to treat whatever it is that, I, that, that, I'm, that I'm up against. I mean, again, there's exceptions, but, but I mean, I think, I think I like my chances better today than 100 or, or 200 years ago, even if emerging from a global pandemic or uncertain economic times. Your chances today for a decent life are pretty high, right? So in comparison with the rest of the world, in comparison with the long timeline of history, no one deny, would deny that you are privileged. No need to be triggered about it. But you do need to understand something. Being privileged does not mean that you are free from difficulty. And I believe this with all my heart, that your difficulty will only be amplified if you choose to live your life in a radical commitment to Christ. When we look at Paul's life, Paul was on a speed track to what many would consider the good life for a first century Jew. He was part of that religious ruling class. He would have been the guy that other people got out of the way for. I mean, Paul's walking down the street, or Saul's walking down the street. The, the peasants in the town would just get out of the way. Uh, or, or they might even tell their, their, their family when they got home, guess who walked by me on the street today? I saw, I saw Saul the Pharisee today. And that was the pathway that Saul was on before he met Jesus. He had authority in that religious class. He would have had all the money that he needed in that class. Not only that, he was also a Roman citizen, and so he had access to due process that nobody else had access even to. He was, of course, privileged. He had access. He had protection on paper. Man, everything was stacked up in his favor until he met Jesus. And that wrecked his life in so many ways. Following Jesus cost him dearly. He actually recounts how much it cost him over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. He talks about imprisonments and countless beatings. He was near death, he says. He says five times he received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and I don't think he's talking about the kind that people from the 60s were talking about. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He was on the short path 
to being a ruler in Jerusalem, and he laid all of that down to follow Jesus, and look what it cost him. And here in Acts chapter 22 and 23, he's attacked and beaten by a mob. He's put on trial. Even when he's facing trial, he is smacked across the face. I I couldn't imagine. Could you imagine being in that scene, in that room, in the center of that group of, of ruling authorities? And they ask you what you're there for, and you say, I've got a clean conscience. And that guard smacks him across the face. I can honestly say I've never been smacked across the face. If I weren't bound, I don't know what my flesh would do. If I were bound, I can't imagine how it would feel to be abused in such a way, such a disrespectful way, and to not be able to fight back or defend oneself. Why'd he do that? We didn't go through all that because he was a Pharisee, because he was a Jew. He went through all that because he simply chose to follow Jesus. So whatever privilege you have, privilege of your citizenship as as an American, privilege of being born in the 21st, or being born, yeah, 21st century. Gosh, these kids weren't even born in the 1900s. Can you believe that? It will not insulate you from hardship, particularly if you choose to live your life for Jesus. And if I had to check the wind of our current cultural moment, I would say that the more sold out to Jesus you are, the less your status actually matters. Paul would even tell his ministry to trainee Timothy there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't be shocked if your biblical view of the world is mocked. Don't be shocked if you go to that college classroom and the professor makes fun of you because you believe in a biblical creation. Don't be shocked if you go to that workplace and somebody mocks you because you're, you're in, you invite them to come to church on Easter to celebrate the resurrection. Don't be shocked if you experience those things. Don't be shocked if your faith isn't welcome in your classroom or your workplace or wherever your life takes you. Don't be surprised when you were confronted with a hard choice at some point in time in your life to remain faithful to Jesus or pursue personal and career gains. Your privilege will not protect you from hardship. Secondly, this is so true, we talked about this a little bit last week, learn to control your words. Learn to control your words. I'm sure there are many adults in the room today that would say, there are plenty of times where I wish I had controlled my words. There are plenty of times that I wish I could put the toothpaste back in the, in the tube of toothpaste, so to speak. Go back to verse 3 for just a second in Acts 23. Paul said to them, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul had just been hit in the mouth. I can imagine, this is not, these are not kind words he's saying here, by the way. Okay, these are not, this is not an encouraging word that he's saying. I mean, there is anger in what he has to say here. He is, he is irritated by what he has, what has just occurred to him. And so these angry words that he is speaking, I can only imagine that those words are spoken through a busted lip, maybe a knocked out tooth and a bloody nose. Okay, that's the scene here. He just got knocked in the face. And then he retorts back 
to the high priest. There's a part of me that gets really excited about what he said here. Because I'm on Team Paul, right? Are you not on Team Paul at this point? Like, I want him to, I want him to take them all out, either physically or verbally. I want to brawl here because he knows better than all these people who are up against him. So I'm on Team Paul. When we see this, he calls the high priest, you're a whitewashed wall. If to, in today's language, he's throwing shade, right? He's throwing shade at Ananias, the high priest. That's what's taking place here. He basically is telling the high priest, the most important religious authority in town, you are the worst kind of hypocrite. You're an ugly wall with a pretty covering. In political terms, you are a pig with lipstick. That is what he is saying here. And his verbal retaliation is filled with spite and bitterness, I mean, who can blame him, right? Who can blame him? Don't forget that that group of men that he's sitting in front of is a group of men that he knew personally. Because remember in Paul's former life as Saul, this was the circle that he ran in. This was where his trajectory was leading him. Instead of being in judgment in that place, he would have been seated in the circle with those men of authority. His life was on track to have a seat on this very council. He could look around the room and he knew these men by name. He knew their life. He knew their background. Yet in spite of the emotion of the moment, this was not the place for Paul to lose control of his words. And so you may say, well, why is it not a why? Why couldn't he, why couldn't he get angry here? What was, the, what was wrong with him getting angry here? Because if he had kept control of his words, he potentially would have had the opportunity to bear witness for Jesus if he had simply handled his tongue better. In fact, when we get into verse 6, Paul is going ahead and taking advantage of the emotion of the moment. He recognizes the theological difference that's existing in this, in this council, and he manages to stir up a fight among them. He gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees to fight with one another. Jesus had done that before as well. Verse 10 says it got violent. That's a business meeting right there, right? It's not a good business meeting until violence, you know, until until punches start to get thrown. It's so bad that they say Paul's going to be ripped to shreds. Get him out of there. But here's the thing. This was the only time that Paul would have been able to stand before this group. doesn't happen again. He doesn't have another opportunity in front of this group of men. And so instead of bearing witness to Christ, he's used his words to insult them and to stir up controversy within them without pointing them back to Jesus. Now, arguments we made about whether or not it was the right thing to do, but later on in chapter 24, verse 20, Paul's own words bear witness that he had actual regrets for how he handled that opportunity. And so if Paul regretted it, And I think we're on stable footing to say that he probably could have handled that differently than he did. So as we guard our words, we need to understand that we should take advantage of opportunities to bear witness for Christ and not forsake those opportunities because of our loose words. It's truly amazing how quickly our words can disqualify us from bearing witness about Jesus. We talked about this last week, the danger of the tongue, but we see the cost of the tongue as it spews anger-fueled fire. Jesus said it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth clearly speaks. Thirdly, don't forget that God has a better plan for you than you do. 
Students, please understand this as you graduate this week or even as you've already graduated. God has a better plan for you than what your plan is. We always ask kids and teenagers, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think the better question is, what does God want to do with you when you grow up? What does God plan to do with you when you grow up? It's a much better question because kids always want, you know, what's got the most money, what's the best career path, those sort of things. Well, God may not want them to have the job that has the most money or the most success or, or all those things. After the show trial is complete, Paul is locked up in some dungeon somewhere. His face is probably swollen from getting whacked during the trial. He can't get his hands on an ibuprofen to save his life. He's miserable. He's regretting how he handled the testimony at the trial. He's probably wondering, is my ministry finished? Is this where it all comes to a close? But that night, he gets this incredible reminder. In Acts 23, 11, it says, that night, the Lord, or the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Did you know Jesus is the only person that uses this phrase in the New Testament? Jesus is the only one who uses this phrase, take courage, in the New Testament. He says, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This wasn't just a settling in his heart. This wasn't the Holy Spirit moving in this way. The Bible says Jesus was with him. Jesus came to Paul in that moment. Jesus stood by him, and he was given this incredible reminder that God wasn't finished with him. Even in the midst of feeling like a failure, Paul was reminded powerfully of God's faithfulness. God has been faithful to Paul to connect all the dots, and he continues to do so. He promised Paul that his dots are going to lead to Rome, but he's got no clear sense of the line that takes him there. He just has to trust God's plan. Here's the thing. You're going to fail. You're going to feel like a failure. Anybody ever done that before? Sure. We all have. You're going to fail. You're going to feel like a failure. There's not a person in this room that hasn't had that experience of feeling like an absolute and total failure. But where we see failure, God sees an opportunity for growth. Where we see mistakes, God sees forgiveness. Where we see disaster, God sees an opportunity for glory. And God's plan for Paul all along was for Jerusalem to be a conduit to Rome. And none of the events of the previous day have altered that at all, even if Paul in that moment felt like he blew it. We all need to keep that in mind. Let our failures be our classroom. Let our mistakes be be the refining fire that our lives need. And then finally, live every day as a life on trial. I love how Paul began his speech before the Sanhedrin there. He wasn't sure how that whole thing was going to go. Didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Probably wasn't going to be in his good, right? But he made this declaration in Acts 23.1 that got him into some trouble. He said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience, up to this day. You know, if you think about it, every day we live our life, it's a life on trial. And as we live, we are presenting evidence. Just consider that. That every word, every deed, every action, every thought is just more evidence for this trial. The interesting thing about Paul is that he stands before this body and he makes the claim that he's lived before God in, in all good conscience. Truth be told, that includes a lot of mistakes. I mean, he oversaw the active persecution and murder of Christians early in his career. I mean, that was his, that was his life in that moment before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He actively oversaw 
the murder and persecution of the church. I don't think he went to bed at night saying, man, I sure was the best persecutor that ever lived. He probably went to bed at night on moments of weakness thinking back to those days and thinking, man, what a, what a terrible thing that I did. But he still is able to say he lives every lie, every day in good conscience in spite of those mistakes. Because understand this, mistakes make the man. Mistakes make the woman. Uh, I have a pastor friend who had asked, uh, it's been a while ago, and he asked me about regrets. And he said, do you, do you have any regrets in ministry? And I thought about that for a long time. I thought, regrets? What's a regret? Foster, I think about that goofy video you show, you show at Daylight Savings Time with the, the, the dude with the regret tattoo. Uh, that'd probably be a regret. Um, but I was thinking about regrets. And regrets imply a mistake. But if I took away all my mistakes, then I take away a lot of, a lot of classroom opportunities that I've had for growth. I mean, it'd be like going back to school and saying, you know, let me take away this class and that class and that class and that class because, you know, I would be less the man if those things were not part of my life. And so to think of regrets is to, is to really take away a lot of the, the laboratory instruction in life that I've had. All my mistakes have helped teach me important lessons that I might have missed otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong. Seniors, you're far better off learning from other people's mistakes. Okay? You are way better off to learn from your friends' mistakes, to learn from your parents' mistakes, to learn from your older siblings' mistakes. That is a much better classroom for you. But you're going to mess up. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna mess up along the way, but every mistake, every error, if you are walking in faithfulness to Christ, all of those errors are simply opportunities to allow Jesus to work on you and in you and through you. And here's the thing, we're not going to get it right every time. Our lives are littered with the minefields of mistakes that we've made. The evidence, though, is not the mistakes that we've made. The evidence is how we've learned from those mistakes and allowed God to use those mistakes and errors to make us into the men and women that God would have us to be. All the times I get it wrong, all the times that we get it wrong, ought to be helping us work towards tomorrow getting it right when the opportunity is set in front of us again. Paul never hides from his failures. You never see Paul hiding from the mistakes. He owns every one of them. And even as he reflects on this, this hearing with the Sanhedrin later in the next chapter, he recognizes the mistakes are opportunities for God to do a work. And so as we live our lives on trial, what's the verdict that we're looking for? Well, I like how Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We live our lives on trial so that the evidence we present is that our faith is seen as genuine. What does genuine faith look like? Well, it's faith that stands up under trial. 
It's faith that when pressure is applied, doesn't crumble. It's faith that when fire is applied, gets stronger. It's faith that bounces back from failure. It's faith that, that rebounds when mistakes are made. And so as we look to the class of 2022 today, we're sending these young people into a world, let's be honest, it's not altogether friendly to the things of God. And so every day of your life, if you choose to walk with Jesus and be obedient to Jesus, your life will be on trial, giving evidence day in and day out. Well, what's the verdict? Will we continue to see, as Peter says, the tested genuineness of your faith. And so beyond the class of 2022, truth be told, aren't we all really on trial? Isn't every day that we live really just an opportunity to present evidence of the genuineness of our faith? Can we stand before our accusers and join with the Apostle Paul and utter these words? I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the challenge of scriptures that ask us to look deeply into a mirror. Thank you for the class of 2022 and for the privilege that you have blessed them with. Lord, to be born into such a time as this, to be born into such a place as this, to be born in a time when they leave high school with every opportunity at their disposal if they choose to pursue it. And so, God, I pray that even as they do so, that you will help them see that whatever hardship they encounter is, is for their good. It will help them grow and mature and continue to develop into your likeness. Lord, I pray that as they go, they would control their words. They would not allow their words to disqualify them. And I pray, Father, that they would recognize that your plan for them is better than theirs, and that they would pursue it faithfully and diligently, and they would seek to have the people of God in their life as they go, and that, God, you would change the world with these young men and women who love and serve you. And so, God, as we all live our lives, lives on trial, may the verdict that is cast be that our faith is genuine and that our walk with you is strong. God, I pray now as we respond to your word that you would move in our midst. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.